Welcome to Working Class Heroes Radio, a radio show by working people for working people in New York City. We're live from WBAI 99.5 FM. My name is Mel, and I'll be one of your hosts tonight. Today, we will be talking about the Occupy City Hall encampment here in New York City. The encampment began on June 23rd, when people demanding to defund and abolish the NYPD took over a plaza next to City Hall. Hundreds of people joined the encampment, growing to its peak on the eve of the New York City Council budget vote. Despite the end of the budget negotiation, the encampment continues now as Abolition Park. Today, we will have a conversation with community activists Tatiana Hill and Khalil Fulker, organizing committee member of New York City DSA Afro-Socialist and a member of Red Bloom Collective. Both have been integral in organizing and maintaining the encampment. We as a show have been over to Occupy City Hall several times, and it has been really inspiring to see community building in progress. Building and sustaining a community is not easy. So we wanted to share with you all a sneak peek on how Occupy was organized. It's going to be a great discussion. But before our interview, we'd like to share some headlines from this week with you. So keep your radio on 99.5 FM, because Working Class Heroes is live. by most deaths, one of my all-time favorites. And now on to some headlines from the past week. My name is Johnny, and I am your other co-host. ICE announced Monday that international students on F-1 and M-1 visas will not be allowed to stay in or re-enter the country if their school is holding online-only courses this fall. They will have to either transfer to a school with in-person instruction, leave the country, or face deportation. Many think this move is part of the Trump administration's efforts to pressure colleges and universities to reopen their campuses during the pandemic. And I agree. This is just another way to push to reopen the economy and country. It's a power move. It's straight up bullying. And, you know, I also think it further empowers ICE, a fascist department. Mel, what was your reaction when you heard this? You know, to be honest, my reaction was um, was shock, really. I had so many friends. Um, texting me, emailing, posting stuff online, um, terrified. You know, a lot of my friends who are international students who have been here studying um, and now really are terrified about what they're going to have to do. Um, and it's really, you know, my these friends pay a lot of money to go to these universities. In fact, they pay more money than than a lot of students um, from here. So it's it's really it's it's really shocking, and I think. Um, you know, one of the best takes though I heard recently was um, somebody posted online um, something about how universities should 
um, help these students out by setting up a, a one-credit class called F-ICE 101. Um, that's an in, you know it's an in-person class uh, with with excused absences, and then in the spring have a, a sequel class called F-ICE 102. Um, and I think something like that is is, is funny, but it, it it does you know show the way in which universities really need to step up and advocate for students right now. Um, but, you know, moving on to the next headline, meanwhile, that's not really the only way the Trump administration has been trying to pressure schools to reopen lately. On Wednesday, the president tweeted that schools should be open in the fall, full stop, and then blasted school social distancing guidelines put out by the Centers for Disease Control for being expensive and impractical. Trump stupidly based his argument on the fact that other countries have reopened schools already and had little COVID transmission, even though those countries opened schools only after infection rates had gone down, while in the U.S., as we all know, they continue to rise. But a pushback has started, led by the United Teachers of Los Angeles, which on Friday became the first major union to call for schools to remain completely closed in the fall. Meanwhile, officials in New York City, the country's largest school district, have announced plans for a partial reopening, with students alternating between in-school and remote learning, and others opting for full-time schooling at home. Gianni, last week we just had New York City teacher Ronnie Almonte as a guest, and he talked about how people like Andrew Cuomo and Mayor Bill de Blasio cost thousands of lives by keeping schools open too long this spring. What do you think of this push to reopen in the fall now? Mel, this is, this is terrible news. I'm not surprised that Trump and his cronies want to reopen schools without providing any safety and health measures. But as Ronnie and you shared, less, you know, teachers, students, and parents are mobilizing to ensure their lives are not put at risk for profit. Schools are not the only ones under attack, you know. Uh, I really feel this. Earlier this week, I was out protesting outside the Bronx Housing Court with tenant unions, community orgs, and legal service workers to object the reopening of housing courts because evictions were never, ever, ever, ever needed or essential, unless, you know, we're evicting colonizers. But anyway, just to say that all of this has really intensified, because we just got word that the Brooklyn Criminal Court will resume in-person hearings on, the, on July 15th. And word on the street is that the Brooklyn Housing Court will follow suit on July 25th. So currently, legal service workers, just like educators, are gearing up to stop the irresponsible and deadly reopening of our workplaces. You know, we have to shift from what will it take to reopen to there is no way to reopen in a, in a safe way. So solidarity. But just to conclude the headline section, NYPD Chief Shea claims that an uptick in city murders is linked to a reduction in jail population. But the New York Post reports that this is simply untrue and that his own department's data proves it. Shea has been all over the that the terrible spike of recent shootings has been caused by bail reform and population reduction at Rikers Island to prevent the spread of COVID. But just one out of 11,000 people released under the statewide bail reform law that passed January 1st has been charged with a shooting. Just one out of the 2,500 people released from Rikers Island to reduce crowding amidst the pandemic has been arrested in connection with the shooting. So, Mel, I don't know about you, but this sounds like propaganda to me. What do you think? I think definitely. I mean, this is this is the kind of logic and arguments that um, cops and enforcement have used um, forever to sort of fear monger folks into uh, pushing back against efforts to reform bail 
to get rid of money bail um, or to reduce um, you know, prison populations and jail populations. And what's really terrible about it now is that when you hear these folks make these arguments, um, they still refuse to talk about um, folks in jails as, as humans, as people entitled to, um, to safety and protection and to dignity, um, or to the ways in which uh, these jail populations um, are you know, completely tied to um, the health and safety of the public at large. Um, and so, you know, they kind of like that's that's sort of one of the only things they can they can um, they can really count on now is to use that kind of fear mongering um, to use fear to to strip these folks of of their dignity even further in a time like this. And so it's you know it's really gross. It's really disgusting that they continue to use that that argument, including for bail, which has already been you know litigated in so many different ways publicly, right. um, and now to try to use COVID. Um, and, and, and fear-mongering to roll that back, it's just, it's just ridiculous. I completely agree. Well, that concludes our, our headline section. And when we come back, we're going to talk with Tatiana and Khalil about the occupation at City Hall that they both helped build to challenge policing in this city. So stick around. For I love you, say the police. For the fires of heaven, say the police. Don't say recruitment. Don't say Trotsky. Say police. For alarm clocks, say the police. For my morning commute. For electoral system. For endless solar wind. Say the police. Don't say I have lost understanding of my visions. Don't say that much maligned human faculty. Don't say suicided by society. Say the police. For the movement of the heavenly spheres. Say the police. For the moon's bright globe, for the fairy mob, say f- the police. Don't say direct debit. Don't say join the party. Say you are sleeping for the boss. Then say f- the police. Don't say evening rush hour. Say f- the police. Don't say here are the steps I've taken to find work. Say f- the police. Don't say tall skinny latte. Say f- the police. For the Earth's gravitational pull, say f- the police. For make it new, say f- the police. Don't say spare change, say f- the police. Don't say happy new year, say f- the police. Perhaps say rewrite the calendar. But after that, immediately after that, say f- the police. For philosopher's stone, for royal wedding, for the work of transmutation, for love of beauty, say f- the police. Say no justice, no peace, and then say the police. That was a live poetry reading of Sean Bonet's ACAB, a nursery rhyme, led by Kay Gabriel at a poetry reading recently at the Abolitionist Library at the City Hall encampment we'll be talking about. And that was held on July 7th. Now we are happy to welcome community activist Tatiana Hill, an organizing committee member of NYC DSA Afro Soch and member of Red Bloom Collective, Khalil Sulker. Hi, Khalil, you there? Hey, hey, how's it going? Yeah, I'm here. Hi, y'all. Hello. Well, we're really happy to have hey. you here. Um, this is the first time we have two guests on live, so bear with us, and we're so excited. So let's get started. Tatiana, could you please tell us how did you get involved with the occupation, and why did you decide to stay? Uh, so I'm a organizer with Vocal New York. Uh, we've been working on different campaigns surrounding police brutality, um, surrounding work around ending mass incarceration as well. 
And we always address issues of the city budget because we feel like the budget does not align with the needs of the community. And we are very clear in the understanding that social services need to be improved and policing needs to be decreased. So when we knew the close of the budget was upcoming and it was looking like it wasn't going to be um, directed towards increasing social services, we decided that we should do something really radical, like an occupation. Um, So some of my team that are organizers at Vocal as well decided we wanted to do this in conjunction with other organizers. And we wanted it to be black-led, so we reached out to different groups that all of us work with. Um, We all do similar work and have very similar beliefs as well. Um, And we decided to start the occupation and hope that the movement itself would build it up and continue it and allow it to grow. And I stayed because it was something that was important to me. Um, The meaning behind it, the sense of community that was built within it was something that I wanted to be a part of. And I also... um, was one of the people who were there from the beginning. So that was important to me for to be present as well. Thank you, Tatiana. And what about you, Khalil? How did you get involved with Occupy? So I had heard about the action uh, through, you know, organizing discords and signals. And I decided to check it out uh, because I'm uh, involved in the defund at NYPD campaign that DSA is doing. And also, um, Emerge at, with some other folks in coalition were planning a similar tactic that kind of fell apart. So I was curious to see mm-hmm. how um, Occupy City Hall was developed. And, you know, I decided to stay because, you know, I saw, you know, how much it could contribute, you know, to larger movement um, in, in, just, in terms of just sheer community building, in terms of allowing the movement to talk to itself for the first time. You know, people were introducing themselves to folks they met uh, in the streets, you know, during the early days of the George Floyd protests. And that was something very beautiful. And also, like, political education and the formations that uh, were created, like uh, the Abolition Commons Library. Those are all things that I felt uh, compelled me to stay, um, to make sure that, you know, what was being created in that space uh, could be you know, propagated to the, the rest of the, the movement in the city. Well, thank you both. Um, that's a great introduction to, to your involvement in, in the occupation and the occupation itself. And, you know, one of the things we wanted to do um, on this show is give listeners a real sense of what it was like to, what it's like to be there, um, you know, in the last few weeks and now. And I think one of the things that we um, were so amazed by um, when, we, when we've gone is the kinds of um, political education workshops, um, programming, the abolitionist library, the general assemblies, and all of these kinds of actions that have helped to um, not only bring people to the space, but act, actually promote dialogue and empowerment and, and education. Um, and we, one of the things that I attended when I was there was an um, abolition workshop by the Emerge Caucus. Um, and we wanted to share a little clip from that, um, from the end of that workshop, uh, to give listeners a real sense of um, of, of what it was like and what folks are, are doing down there. So take, take a listen to this clip. Question one. Right now in New York City, we're calling to defund the police. How do we ensure that our demands will bring us closer to abolition? How do we ensure that they take power away from the police and reduce contact with the police right now? And how do we ensure that they win investments in community needs? Question two. How do we get what we want? 
How do we use relationships in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces to build power? Because we need power to confront the police. What are the key ways that the police retain their power and legitimacy that we can break? Question three. How do we address everyday harm without relying on or strengthening the prisons or police? So if you organize with a collective, how does your collective, how does your group address interpersonal harm against, uh, amongst members? If you experience conflict or harm in this encampment, if someone else told you they experienced harm in this encampment, what would you do to address it? What kind of tools can we use? So that's question three. So you know, these kinds of workshops are occurring all the time at the encampment, generating a lot of on-the-ground discussions about how to truly build power and envision a post-abolition society. Tatiana, could you share with us how workshops like these were organized and, and give us a sense of the kinds of daily programming and political education at the space and, and how they've helped build power and community at the encampment? Um, so basically, we opened the floors for different types of folks to do uh, workshops or to dance, to sing, to have presentations. Um, we wanted a, a variance of, of different things going on, but we did want a lot of political workshops to be the main focus. So we had made an Instagram page where people could DM and reach us if they wanted to um, sign up. We posted the schedule, and we also had a welcome table at the encampment itself where people could come and sign up as well. Um, we would ask like what the topic matter would be and if it's anything centering around the political aspects of what we would like to discuss with the crowd, then they were free to do that. So, for example, we had um, someone coming from RAP, which is Release Aging People in Prison. Um, they did a presentation about ending mass incarceration. Um, so that directly obviously aligns with defunding the police. And if anything, the police is a you know vehicle of mass incarceration as well. So that was something that was helpful. We had several workshops about abolition. Uh, we had workshops around community safety and what that means. There were workshops around reimagining our society because I think it's important for folks to understand if we talk about defunding the police and we talk about abolition, it's a movement that takes time and it takes education and it takes these type of uh, discussions that are going to be filtered through groups where we can have um, different types of input on what we are reimagining our society to look like for us. And that means we have to delve into what community safety actually is and what that would mean for us as individuals as well as for our collective. Thank you. And, you, and you know, I'm, I'm curious about, you mentioned community safety, and the clip also talks about account accountability within mm -hmm. the encampment, right? So I'm, I'm wondering, Khalil, could you share how decisions were made on the ground and how did y'all establish community participation in, you know, with accountability? How, how did... How did that um, tra translate to community safety? So that's actually a bit of a complicated question because I think there's a lot of confusion about like convening versus organizing. And, you know, the, the camp kind of scaled up so quickly and on the fly, there wasn't a lot of clarity about how decisions were made and, you know, who was making them. Um, but I will say as someone who is part of like, the formation that was called itself uh, the Radical People's Assembly that I remember, I, I think it was like the fourth day, I reached out to Tatiana. I was like, hey, how do you feel about this Gen Assembly thing on how do we make this a Capri zone? And she was like, all right, cool. Like, sure. Um, I was like, all right, bet. And we had started doing them. 
Um, and it wasn't really until like end of the first week that it became kind of more generalized. Um, in those early assemblies, there were a lot of decision making made. There was some great political conversation about you know tactics and strategy. Um, but like in terms of like decision making, uh, at the assembly before our second raid at the camp was pretty much one of the first major ones, which was like stay or go, people deciding to stay, um, and feeling more empowered as our largest assembly. Um, and then in terms of general decision making, it was like people just stepping up, you know, in terms of like original conveners starting some committee structure things around like welcome table or greeting or food or what have you or programming. Um, then other members stepping up around, you know, uh, the library commons, um, you know, supporting other mutual aid structures. Um, and, you know, still right now, there is still a lot of uh, uncertainty um, in terms of, like, structure and community accountability. And I think that, that that has been probably one of the weaknesses of this space in terms of, like, how do we uh, develop community agreements because there are several sets of community agreements throughout our, our the past two weeks and issues of, like, reinforcing them. Um, but I will say that last, like, couple nights ago, uh, there was a General Assembly where folks came up with the community agreements and voted on them. And so uh, hopefully uh, that is reinforced so long as folks are still holding space at City Hall. I hope that was helpful. No, yeah, it's really helpful. I mean, it's very difficult to, you know, create, maintain community and movement, right? And you're doing both. And, and, and so, you know, I really agree that it takes a democratic process um, along with anti-capitalist politics and, and a lot of work to, to be able to establish community safety and accountability. And it has to be very intentional, too, you know. So, um, and it's interesting that you mentioned that as one of the weaknesses. Um, but, you know, um, I personally think that one of the strengths is mutual aid. And, and actually, we're going to talk about that next. Um, when we come back, we will discuss mutual aid at the encampment, and we're going to take a break. So please stay with us. A lot of things are acting on my mind I know I gotta learn faster this time Cause yesterday's today's overflowing Into rainy city sidewalk church streams And in a dream How many more till they see our humanity Stop us running our own streets Hey, Mr. P Can't you see the world is watching you hide Behind your white clan cloak and your bum-ass money But you cannot hide from the us and the we The people we see That we are Stronger than you will ever understand That was a song played live by a participant at the Abolitionist Library Poetry Reading uh, that we mentioned before. You are listening to Working Class Heroes, and we are discussing Occupy City Hall with community activist Tatiana Hill and DSA member Khalil Folker. We were discussing the role of general assemblies, daily programming, and collective decision-making in building community at the encampment. Another key component in building community is mutual aid. We were able to speak with Lucy, the food coordinator, during the first weeks of the encampment, and she thought that one of the best takeaways of this occupation was the much-needed mutual aid efforts organized by volunteers. Listen to what they have to say. 
And no other reason why I'm here. I've, I've read and heard a lot of criticisms of what's going on. I frankly don't give a about it. Growing up, I spent five and a half-ish years homeless. You know, I kind of worked my way up, quote unquote. I remember the days where I didn't know where food was coming from. And I know now as an adult that when food did come in, when I knew there wasn't income coming in, it was because of soup kitchens. It was because of donation bins. To be able to provide that now, if nothing else, even if we are not able to successfully divest, divest from, you know, police funds, even if we're not able to successfully get the abolition that we're striving for ultimately at the very end of the day i'm proud to be doing what i'm doing because there's a lot of unhoused there's a lot of low income um just a lot of people who are, are food insecure and for people to be this food insecure in america the pandemic because this has been going on for a long time and the pandemic just literally lit a fire to the gasoline that's just been streaming so it doesn't matter what happens just to be able to provide some sort of food security for a week for two weeks for those who've been in the area always going to be proud of that never going to regret a thing that was lucy and you know that was one of the things that we were so uh, moved by when we were there uh, because we have been talking about defunding the police and thinking through demands and, and thinking through abolition. Um, and then when we talked to Lucy, she really focused on mutual aid. Um, as something that's really important if we want to reimagine a society without cops built on anti-capitalist principles where we take care of us. So Tatiana, could you talk about mutual aid in the encampment and discuss the abolitionist political principles that guide the act of mutual aid? Um, so basically, in the encampment, we saw a beautiful coming together of uh, people and efforts. We had an outpour of love and support from the community um, daily. Like hundreds of messages literally took us hours sometimes to like respond to people. Um, it was at certain points, some people we didn't even get to respond to. We were just like, come by, just bring whatever you can. Or, you know, people showed up daily wanting to volunteer, um, wanting to give support, wanting to make donations by ordering food, bringing supplies. Um, sometimes they ordered deliveries as well. People wanted to donate money and funds also. Um, but the physical donations were really what was the most beautiful thing to see, you know, that people shared what they had. And I think that speaks to the abolitionist pr principles of not needing the government um, to rely on. We rely on ourselves. Uh, we live in a world, as Lucy mentioned, in a country where we have excess. There are those who live in wealth and they have more than enough funds and opportunities to share resources with those around them. We could all live in a better place. Um, and I think Khalil could definitely speak to that because, you know, the democratic socialist, that's what we speak about in that sense. So that principle of taking care of one another and not relying on a government that really um, survives at the struggle of the people rather than our safety and our well-being, I think that that's important. And we believe like, Public safety is public health. It's the same. It's one and the same. And that means people having the resources that they need to live in a well community. And therefore, we wouldn't have a need for policing if we have those resources. And we saw a portion of that happening at the occupation with everything that was provided and the types of services that were offered. So it mitigated a lot of what concerns are around community safety. When we have all those resources, people are in a better space to live with one another and, um, you know, just be in a world that we would all like to live in. 
Definitely. Thank you, Tatiana. Uh, you know, that really speaks to, to my experience. I think a lot of our experiences when we were there, and it's something you could feel uh, the moment you walked in. Um, and even now, when I was there more recently, um, that's something that continues and is clearly something foundational to the space. Um, Khalil, do you have um, do you have any thoughts on, on this and how mutual aid works um, in relation to, um, you know, political principles and, and what building a space like this um, should be like? Yeah, absolutely. So I think mutual aid is probably one of the you know, biggest uh, successes of this space, both in the first week and now. Um, and I think it speaks uh, more importantly than, you know, as a communist, more importantly than even uh, substituting itself for government aid, but more so about building a culture of care, right? Changing our individualist, uh, consumerist, competitive culture Right, where we're hoarding our own resources and things to a collaborative solidarity-based culture of care, where it's like we keep us safe, see a need, fill a need, um, and you see that through, you know, the as Tatiana mentioned, the outpouring of, you know, donations or like physical, uh, you know, food, water that people, you know, brought to this space. Every comrade I know is like, oh, I'm going to show up to city hall. What do people need? Um, to like even the the daily habits at the space, you know, someone, you know, giving someone a light or getting them a bottle of water, um, you know, or walking them to the bathroom after a person with disabilities, you know, all these things are mutual aid and develop a new culture that, that is embedded in uh, uh, a new culture that's embedded in, in real care in a society, um, in a carceral state that cares more about private property than actual human beings. And so for me, mutual aid uh, from an abolitionist framework really emphasizes community building, um, that you need mutual aid, you know, to build stronger communities because a strong community is what keeps us from having to stay in a world with police, in a world with prisons. You know, and mutual aid is something that cultivates this culture of collective care where we keep us safe, where, you know, everyone is responsible for care work. And it's just, and it's not on the backs of, you know, women or queer folks to do that social reproductive labor, but actually the work of everybody in a given community and even state. So th those are things I'd say, um, like what was uh, my understanding um, and, and observation of mutual aid at Abolition Park, but also like the role of mutual aid in abolitionist politics. And, you know, I, it's so, it's definitely so true. I like that you mentioned what is mutual aid but may not be, con, you know, considered mutual aid, such as walking someone to the bathroom that, you know, may have a disability. And because I feel like my family and I, you know, we have been involved in mutual aid without calling it mutual aid. Like if someone needed money to move, we would organize a bingo, right, and get donations and help them move that way. And, you know, so for me at least that has been something really beautiful getting to really understand mutual aid, really understand its abolitionist roots, you know, and how through that we can all share what you, exactly what you said, you know, um, the work of caring for each other and building community. Um, you know, I'm going to say it again. Mutual aid is how we survive, how we ensure the health of our communities, and we keep us safe. Um, you know, just like Lucy, that was my favorite part of the encampment. I really liked the laundry station where, you know, the clothes station, the garden, garden, the library. And 
we were able to speak to Joanza Williams from Vocal NY and ask him what was his favorite part of the occupation. And this is what he had to say. My favorite part is that the, the number of people whose politics are mixed that are here, everybody's on the left, primarily. But some folks are more left. Some folks are absolutely, like, abolish the NYPD today. Today. Some are like, well, let's say abolish the NYPD, you know, in a, a sort of an, an abolitionist tract. And I think that finding the way to sort of exist, coexist here, is how we build the kind of left movements that are going to transform our society. Like, we've got to figure out how to, get, how, we, how to get the reformists to understand how reform is antithetical abolition, but that not all reforms are inherently antithetical to abolition. And like really the deep political education that's happening here, the deep community building, and the obvious sort of willful, the willful sort of way that we are showing the world, not just about City Hall, but really the world, what it actually looks like to build power, what it actually looks like to challenge all of the notions of reality that have been sort of constructed for us, you know, from a sort of a white supremacist, heteropatriarchal uh, lens. Um, that's not actually life. That's not actually reality. And we are a living reminder. I always say that protest is the physical manifestation of the body politic. And the body politic is saying, we want to see radical changes. We want to see a total shift in how we do anything, how we even define safety, how we define life, how we define what is valuable. And we want to center the most vulnerable people. I really feel what Jonza has to say. Um, you know, I, it's definitely fun and interesting, you know, having these debates and really sitting down and figuring out how can we get to the same place? How can we win people over to abolitionist politics and to the way to move forward in the movement? Um, so I'm curious, what have been some of the successes or favorite aspects of the encampment? And what has been some of the lessons learned through organizing in this space? Let's start with you, Tatiana. Um, for success, I would say that the movement itself is larger now. You know, more people are educated about what's going on and how they can be a part of that. People are aware that they can use their own bodies, their privilege, to speak to something that has long since been silent. Um, I also love, as a success story, to see so many of the younger leaders emerging. I've seen uh, a lot of teenagers coming to the space and telling me, you know, they just started protesting with George Floyd, and then they came to Occupy, and they stayed every night, every day, and they're so empowered to know that they have a strength in their own body, in their own voice, to make changes in their society. And they understand that uh, there's a new generation. Like, they can take over this movement mm -hmm. and propel it forward. And I think that's really powerful. Um, as far as lessons learned, it was a lot of lessons to learn. But um, mostly, I would say... You know, we wanted it to be like a free form and flowing body, but I think that for me personally, if we had more of a planned structure, um, especially around safety um, for our own community within the occupation, it might have been um, more helpful. And I just think for myself, uh, not to have any expectations. A movement is flowing, it's fluid, mm. it's always changing. There's always new things to learn. There's always observations to be made that might change the direction of which you see things going in. But I think that to be open-minded about the way that it could go and what you could learn from it and who you could meet within that space is something to think towards. So I would say, yeah, like to just be open-minded about um, your growth within these spaces as an, you know, as an activist, as an organizer, as a person who wants to change the world, 
the world is forever changing, so you have to be able to change along with that. Khalil, what about you? What has been some of the successes or favorite aspects um, and lessons from the encampment? So what I would say is uh, some of my, uh, you know, favorite, uh, you know, aspects of the encampment has, you know, definitely been just all the new, you know, friends and comrades I've, I've gotten to meet over the course of two weeks. Uh, definitely the public education and the formation of uh, abolition library commons, uh, the direct action trainings that uh, were put to work in the first couple of raids. Um, one of my comrades led the arrest trainings that were, you know, we, we actually successfully de-arrested uh, some folks uh, during the first raid. Um, awesome. And, you know, ju- just, just the fact that, you know, we, we had seen coming out of the, the first couple of weeks of the protests, um, you know, them starting to turn a bit into, you know, parades, you know, with, you know, police escorts, a little less of the, you know, militancy um, that we saw in the, in the early days. And so ju- just, just the fact that uh, Abolition Park became a space to re-energize the movement, educate the movement, uh, train it. Uh, to intervene in direct actions in more meaningful ways and, and create lasting networks, you know, a lot, regardless of how long Abolition Park lasts, and the people who, you know, struggled in this space, learned in this space are going to be, uh, are going to stay in the movement and stay connected with each other. And those are things I see as like vibrant successes. Uh, one major one I'll speak to very specifically was, and this, and this showed the potential of, of this space and such as power uh, of community uh, is uh, when we when they they turn the sprinklers on us, and you know folks sprung into action, you know putting up uh, tarps, taping uh, protest signs together, and we stopped the sprinklers, and they never turned it on again for the longest. Uh, so, so just shows the power of you know coordinated struggle. Um, in terms of lessons, I would say uh, parroting uh, Tatiana definitely like. Uh, being more, uh, I guess, conscientious about, I guess, establishing, you know, community agreements uh, and taking the seriously orienting folks to a space like that. Um, I would also, I'd say that, like, definitely creating, like, more uh, organizational structures that they could still be porous, they could, but, like, that are clear and folks can plug into um, so folks know, like, what decisions are being made, how, and if they want to be a decision maker, they can. Um, and also just like a lot of humility, um, in terms of like, you know, the best laid plans, you know, if, you know, without kind of like that community buy-in, you know, we'll end up, you know, <laughs> tossing the trash. And so definitely being mindful of like, you know, you're either, you know, uh, for me personally, like either ego or like, you know, your own perspectives and like thinking more about like, like where, like where the people are at and, you know, trying to, you know, orient yourself as much possible to, you know, where the people are at, but also taking seriously the need to, you know, like, be comfortable being a leader and, you know, cohering some of that, um, which is what I strive to do over the course of two weeks, um, regardless of, like, how comfortable I felt with the given, you know, tactic or action, just thinking about, okay, well, how, how could this be better cohered? How can there be more transparency um, you know, how do we make folks, allow folks to talk to each other more? So, yeah, um, that, that's what I would say in terms of, uh, uh, favorite things. Um, all the art <laughs> that's now all over the park and some of the buildings, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's another favorite thing. But yeah. <laughs> 
Well, thank you both. Yeah, I, you know, my experience when I was, was there, every day was a completely new new scene. I felt like, you know, I'd show up, I spent the night, the next day, the whole thing would be completely different. People had been going uh, transformations every single day. You know, I myself felt that, and I could tell from the folks that were really dedicated and, and were really staying there that they were growing every single day. The space was growing, um, you know, through through the different disagreements, um, through reconciliation, through through discussion, um, and then through struggle. Also, when right. you know, when the cops would come by, people right. would really come together despite what was going on and and hold it down. And I had never seen anything like that, and I was amazed by it. And I think that's you know something I, I'm I'm taking away from it. Um, well, thank you both. You know that that's kind of all the time we have for for right now. But we're hoping to. Um, to get some callers in. So thanks, thanks you all for that great discussion. Um, if you if you have any questions for Khalil and or Tatiana regarding the encampment, we want to hear from you. Um, were you part of the the encampment, part of the occupation, or were you you know watching from from the distance or have any have any questions about it? Feel free to give us a call at two one two two zero nine two eight seven seven. Again, call us at two one two. Two zero nine two eight seven seven, and we'll be back after musical break. by Big Freedia. Now let's open up the line. We want to hear from you. Were you part of Occupy City Hall or part of an occupation? Uh, or if you have any questions for Khalil and Tatiana regarding the encampment, we want to hear from you. So please call us now at 212-209-2877. Giovanni, do we have any callers on the line? We actually do have some callers calling in right now we actually have one that's patched through hello caller please tell us your name and where you are calling from michael Press, i'm calling from my apartment in woodside hey thanks for calling in um so yeah what was your question okay my question is uh you say you don't know policing if somebody does something wrong who's gonna who's gonna punish them who who decide uh, you know who, who's gonna punish them because you don't have to authority to do that gotcha I, I think i understand your question i think that speaks to uh, you know, the idea of what, what we mean by abolish the police and what we can, how can we envision a future society. Um, so, Tatiana, did either of you want to take on that question? Um, so I, I would say, one, in America, we have an obsession with punishment. Um, we always think of people needing to suffer, wanting revenge, wanting justice in that sense. But the point of the defund the police and police abolition 
is to create a better society where things are addressed, addressed as they are. So, for example, if someone commits a crime of violence, you would address the trauma that created the situation that created the violence. Um, so that would mean us having mental health services. Sometimes people commit crimes because they're mentally unwell. That happens often. We don't see enough of our mental health services being funded, but we see them being thrown in prison and jail. But does that mend the crime itself? Does it stop it from happening ever again? No. So if you're thinking about we all want, you know, you would think about remedying the trauma itself and the root cause of the issues that's occurring. So, you know, you're, you're making a valid point. We all want to be safe within our communities, within our nation. But the system as it exists currently doesn't specifically punish people who commit crimes. It punishes people who are police and arrested. And that's not always one and the same. So that's something that I would offer for folks to consider when thinking about the defund the police movement and uh, prison and police abolition as well. Definitely. Thank you, Tatiana. I feel like that's, you know, this is a question that um, I hear all the time. And one of the things that I heard a lot of the encampment was, we keep us safe. Um, Kilo, do you have any thoughts on, on what that means or any kind of response to this caller? Hello? Hello. Can you, can sorry, you uh, sorry. Yeah, uh, I, I, I had myself muted. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, Tatiana hit the nail on the head in terms of you know this kind of obsession with punishment, um, and instead of like really dealing with kind of the root causes of of harm that is dealt with, uh, I think you know it's important to ask questions like you know, you know, do do law enforcement actually? keep us safe, you know, um, do you, do you, do you feel, uh, you know, safer when they're around? Um, how often have they actually really helped you or have they, have they not? What, what are, um, Hello? certain things that you can think about sort of that? Um, and, and, you know, um, you know, the, the, the reality is that, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, punishment, you know, so many, you know, folks who have committed harm have not gotten any accountability um, so, so while, while, uh, in, 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 uh, if we abolish you know, police, we abolish prison, um, that doesn't mean that there will be no consequences, that there wouldn't be community accountability because we keep a safe means the community then, uh, figures out, you know, and then the person who's been harmed figures out what is the best way to hold someone accountable. But that doesn't mean, you know, cuffing someone, putting them in a cage, um, and, you know, uh, make, um, training them. <laughs> You know, while they're in a cage, to be a better harm doer, um, and so um, yeah, I, I think I think you know, kind of moving away from this framework of punishment and and, and understanding that uh, it's it's not one and the same with accountability. That there can be accountability uh, without this idea of punishing someone who does harm, uh, because you know, as human beings, a bunch of us you know are capable of of harm or and have been harmed. Um, and thinking about non-carceral ways to deal with harm that has been done uh, and creating a process for someone who has done harm to be held accountable for the harm that they've done. Yeah, you thank, thank you both for that, for those answers. Um, Giovanni, do we have an, another caller on the line? Yes, we have uh, one more caller. All right, caller, you are on the air. Please tell us your name and where you are calling from. Hi, my name is Leonard Wilson. I'm calling from Cincinnati, Ohio. 
And I just thank um, you, Leonard, for for giving us a call. What's your question? Uh, well, I just want to applaud you for your efforts, but there's nothing like um, what you describe happening uh, here in Cincinnati. And so I want to know how I can be involved. And I also want to know um, if you're doing away with punishment, if that's the thinking, and you want people to still be accountable, uh, how exactly will they be accountable? And how will we all be safe if we can't call police? I know police, um, some of them do bad things, but also sometimes we need them. And so if you abolish them, what will we do? Who will we call? Gotcha. Thank you. Thank you, Leonard, for your call. We'll switch it over to Tatiana and Khalil for those. Um, I think that, you know, the second question is related to, to the previous caller's question about what, what a world um, after abolition and after defunding the, the NYPD or the police would look like. Um, so if you want to respond to that um, specifically again, um, feel free to go ahead. But, you know, there was a, Leonard also had another question about how to get involved when you're, um, you know, not in New York City or how to maybe start an occupation um, in another place. Uh, either of you uh, want to respond to that? Um, I know that the Thanks, question was similar. Oh, wait, sorry. Um, I, can, I, can, uh, sorry. I can respond to the question of uh, what accountability can look like. So there's, okay, cool. uh, you know, perspective examples of new sort of institutions that can be made um, to deal, you know, with harm that is done that doesn't involve punishment, you know, whether that's, you know, conflict mediation, uh, having a survivor-led support network, uh, crisis centers, um, self-defense groups, other community-led alternatives to police involvement uh, for things like assault or domestic violence, and also creating rapid response networks that you know can share information, mobilize the community uh, to threats from those who would do a community harm, um, which could be uh, you know like the police, could be a boss, could be a landlord that would harm a community member. Um, so those are certain things to think about in terms of accountability uh, because. I, I would I would think about like one thing that's big about abolitionists is like okay why do you want punishment on behalf of who the person has been harmed right so thinking less about uh, how you orient yourself towards who has committed harm uh, and towards what are the needs of the person who has been harmed because the needs are filled of the person who has been harmed if they find healing right um, then w what is the need for punishment. Because, you know, you could lock a rapist away but have no institutions to deal with the trauma of someone who's been raped. So is that real justice? Has, has, has the harm been reconciled in some way? I, I would say not. So definitely just, just thinking about, like, recentering the focus of uh, who, who do you respond to, who you focus in on when harm has been caused in a given community. And in terms of your questions about, you know, Doing something similar here, there in Cincinnati. I have a bunch of friends in Cincinnati. Uh, go, go Skyline! Um, um, I would say, well, in terms of like supporting things elsewhere, um, I would definitely you know, try to plug Kilo, into. Sorry, you know, I just wanted to um, tell you we got a few seconds on just so we can switch it back. Oh, um, you know, connect with folks here or at Chop in Seattle. I know that doesn't exist anymore, about like lessons they've learned and like ways you could create a cop-free zone in your area. Sorry. Thank you, Khalil. Uh, Tatiana, uh, sorry, what, you were also going to say something. Um, do you have any other response for the caller or to Khalil? Oh, I just wanted to say that a lot of people have these questions of, uh, about how to keep us safe and what, who will we call. Those are solutions we're coming up with as a collective. 
it's not an immediate response that we have right now. We don't have all the answers. One, if we have a government in place, that is partly their duty to do this as well. But us as a community, we can sit and have these meetings and have these conversations, which needs to happen now. That is what's happening. But it's not going to be an answer we can provide today, tomorrow, or maybe even this year. But it will take time. We're not expecting or asking for the police to be defunded right this moment and completely um, abolished. That is a process because in the meantime, we do have to create a plan for our safety, which means us having folks just like on the show today and these collective meetings, town hall meetings in your community, going to community alliances and coming together with a plan. Um, If you look at past in the history, primarily black communities had like a community policing group of members who lived in the community, you know, who had vested interest in the safety of the community and its members. And, you know, they regularly checked in with each other and they were a group of people who the community agreed upon and felt safe with policing their neighborhoods per se. I wouldn't use the word police, but, you know, patrolling the neighborhood, like a neighborhood watch, but maybe a little bit amplified. So things like that could be a solution. But the point is that we don't have all of those solutions at this moment and we're not looking for it to happen today or tomorrow, ideally, until we make a plan to make sure that people do feel comfortable with the created plan for community safety. Thank you so much for that response. I really, really am so happy that both of y'all were here with us to discuss this episode. Unfortunately, we're out of time tonight. Thank you, Tatiana and Khalil, for joining us today. And thank you all for listening. A big shout-out to our engineer, Giovanni, for making this possible and for the Working Class Heroes team. Just to let y'all know, Working Class Heroes will not air next week. Instead, tune in July 24th at 6 p.m. as we continue to cover the ongoing struggle for black liberation during COVID-19. And if you like our show and want to support community radio, you can go to WBAI.org and become a BAI buddy on behalf of Working Class Heroes Radio. We'll see you next week on on Saturday, or the following week, sorry, at 6 p.m. In the meantime, stay safe, New York, and as always, in solidarity. Thank you.